Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Malcolm Kenyatta. Malcolm is a member of the Pennsylvania State Assembly and a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the United States Senate election in 2022. He's got an incredible personal story and an unparalleled commitment to justice. And I'm so glad to have him with us. And I don't trust the people want to overturn the election to make our election law. Right now, Pennsylvania state Republicans are targeting voting laws and trying to increase their control over the courts after losing a legal battle to contest the presidential election results. A new report from the bipartisan Brennan Center found that the state is the launching pad for 14 legislative proposals to restrict or complicate access to voting. This story starts with Donald Trump tweeting that there would be a press conference on Saturday morning at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. People assumed he meant here, the Four Seasons Hotel, but another tweet followed with a clarification. No, not the hotel, but Four Seasons Total Landscaping, a gardening company in an industrial area on the outskirts of Philadelphia. I'm Malcolm Kenyatta, working person, running for the United States Senate. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, Malcolm. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I'm well, thank you. More importantly, how are you doing? You know what? I am as busy as I've ever been, as you might imagine. Let's talk about the fact that you're running for Senate and let's go into why you're running for Senate. I think there are like two questions, not only in my personal election, but I think it's two questions for everybody in the entire country that we're in the process of answering. One, are we going to have a democracy or not? There's nothing predetermined about America's success. And I repeat that over and over again because I think it's critical for us to remember that. There's nothing on some tablet that was granted on high from us that ensures America prospers and succeeds. And after Joe Biden won, I think there are a lot of people who said, everything will sort of get back to some level of normal. And I think there are two things that are wrong with that. First, normal wasn't working for a lot of people already. And second, we saw just almost six months ago, we saw a bunch of people storm the nation's capital in an attempt to overturn the transfer of power. And they weren't just armed with weapons, they were armed with an insidious lie. And so protecting our democracy is a big piece of why I get into this. But then the most important thing, I think right in line with that is, are we going to have a democracy? And then is that democracy going to actually work for working people? Is it or not? And I will tell you, as somebody who grew up in a working poor family and talks about what's been broken for a long time, it hasn't worked for working people for my entire life and for the lives of folks older than me. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your background. You've been a community activist since you were very, very young. I mean, you still are very young now, so I can't imagine how young you were when you started. So tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you for saying that. My goddaughter was like, you're old. It's like, I'm young. (laughs) (laughs) Kids have a way of doing that, don't they? Oh, my gosh. They just say whatever they want. I was 11 years old, and we moved five different times as a kid. I got my first job at 12, washing dishes to help my mom pay the bills. And so I got a crash course very early on in the fact that our economy is set up in a way that 
we all know benefits a certain handful of folks who can afford a bunch of lobbyists and who can basically hire politicians. Because I say about Pat Toomey all the time, on his last day, he won't clock out with the Senate clerk. He'll have to take his exit papers and do his exit interview over at the Club for Growth, because those have been the folks he's worked for every single day. And I saw the end result of that for families who are working, who are doing everything you're told to do, who still can't keep their heads above water. I've experienced that every day of my life. And at 11, I had this important moment. I don't think there's any version of me sitting here talking to you that doesn't start with my mom, Kelly Kenyatta. I was living on this block, Woodstock Street, which is in my now district. And I come home and I'm just like complaining about all the stuff on the block, right? Like I'm just pissed about the trash, about the blight, about whatever. And I'll never forget my mom was smoking a cigarette and without skipping a beat, she said, you know, if you fucking care so much, right? Usually I take out the customers, but that's what she said. That's exactly what she said. You care so much. Why don't you go do something about it? And I was like... Oh, okay. I ran. And how old were you? Eleven at this time? I was eleven. Yeah, my mom was tough as hell, man. She was the sweetest person I know, but she was tough as hell. And she said, "If you care so much, go do something about it." And that is something that has really stuck with me because I do not believe in heroes in our politics. I don't believe in it. I think we've gone down so many rabbit holes that we get stuck in this cult of personality around a single person. I say to folks, I don't need you to be a part of my cult. But I am asking you to be a part of coalition because I believe that when working people, when we actually speak up for ourselves, that there is incredible power in that to create the change that addresses the material conditions of people in these communities. Because election after election, we've had folks running who tell us how much they, quote unquote, care about us. Sometimes they even dress like they care about us. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, as a proposition, the statement Black Lives Matter is unquestionably true. It is a truism. It is indisputable, period, full stop. Black lives matter and matter enormously. Every human being is a precious gift from God. That being said, and quite rightly, the overwhelming majority of Americans agree with the proposition Black Lives Matter. It should be 100% of Americans agree with the proposition Black Lives Matter. That is different, I would note, than the specific organization that has taken up the name Black Lives Matter. But they don't actually know anything in a real lived way about what people are struggling with. And that matters incredibly to policy. Oh, absolutely. And it should. That is what should dictate policy. What did that experience at 11 years old teach you about public service that you hope to take with you as a senator? It's the two lessons and I just touched on it. I will say nobody's coming to save us. Nobody is coming to save us. The way that we are going to ultimately get the things accomplished that are popular with most people, that is what's so frustrating, I'm sure, for all of your listeners and for people who might be listening for the first time, raising the minimum wage, addressing the climate crisis, dealing with the debt crisis, not just student debt, but medical debt, which we know is still the number one reason people go bankrupt in this country doing something about housing, putting folks in a position where no matter where they decide to move or have kids, that kid is going to be able to go to a quality public school. These are things that are broadly popular with the American people, but it's not popular with the folks in the Senate. It's also what they've pinned radical ideas on, which I'm sorry, expecting a good education, expecting people to not have to live in debt 
or to live without a home. These are not radical ideas. Sorry, not sorry. This yeah, exactly. Is not radical. <laughs> These are common sense things. But the issue is we don't have enough elected officials who actually have skin in the game when it comes to the results of this public policy. Or they forget somehow. They evolve into something differently and they don't want to look back at what made them who they are and the struggle that they have. Because I see that a lot in the entertainment industry, right? Every actor, every person in the entertainment industry has a pretty humble beginning. Unless you're born into a Hollywood family, which sure, there are some of those, but most actors or artists in my industry, they do so for that reason. You want to change your life? Do something about it because we have no way out. And so I feel that there is an element that some people don't want to look back at the struggle once they've had a certain amount of success. And that could also be what's happening with certain elected officials. I think there's certainly examples of that that people can pull out. But I think because of how broken our core parts of our democratic process are, that you have to raise gobs and gobs of money to even get to Congress in the first place. Because of that, the system as it's currently constituted benefits a certain type of person. It doesn't allow for the person that has struggled. Season two of Swing Left's How We Win is here. We have an incredible opportunity to fight for our democracy. We don't agonize, we organize. And we've got a lot of work to do. Subscribe right now on Apple and everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is season two of How We Win. You mentioned the Senate not working and being broken. Can we talk about what's not working in the United States Senate right now? Yeah. And I tweeted this the other day, and it's fundamentally true. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and all the folks who are caping for the filibuster, they are pissing away our democracy and pissing away, I think, the best chance we have right now to secure it. All across the country, and especially here in Pennsylvania, we are seeing repeated attacks against the democratic process and repeated barriers that folks are trying to erect to make it more difficult for people to vote. And let's be clear about why they're trying to do this. They're trying to do this because they have bad ideas about what government should do. And what they want to do is out of touch with what the majority of Americans want to do. And so how do they solve that problem, right? They solve that problem by ensuring that a majority of Americans can't participate in the process. And so they're creating a funnel through which they can try to kick out as many voters as possible who they think won't support their agenda, which at this point is whatever the former guy in the White House wants. Speaking with unusual fervor in Philadelphia, President Biden accused Republican leaders of embracing autocracy. They want to be able to tell your vote doesn't count any reason they make up. 
Since President Biden defeated Donald Trump last November, legislatures in 17 states have passed 28 laws that make it harder to vote. We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress and states and cities and counties to stand up for God's sake. That is their entire agenda. How can we do everything we can to soothe his ego and to really enact whatever he wants to do via tweet or his failed blog or however he's putting out statements now? That is their entire agenda of how do they focus on propping up this guy? And I said it to my Republican House colleagues. They behave at this point a lot more like a cult than they do a caucus. And the fact that members in our own party don't recognize the precarious situation that we're in. I open talked about it in some detail, this inflection point that we're at. And we cannot wait, in my opinion, another day to pass the For the People Act, to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and put us in a position where we're actually securing this democracy that has been passed down to us, securing it for the next generation. And it is incredibly frustrating to continue to see intransigence on our side, because basically the argument that Joe Manchin made in that op-ed that he put out was we can't put out the fire that has been lit by these arsonists as it relates to our democracy unless the arsonists are okay with it. I mean, what fire company operates in that way? <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what's happening with Mansion and cinema, but I do think that it is interesting that there is a certain innate ability that we have to not only deny what has just happened for the past five years, but do it in such a way where it's going to affect the future. And I think that it's almost like a protection mechanism. I haven't written an op-ed in a while, and I think it's because I don't want to go back to that place. We've been through a lot as a nation in the last five years. And then you look at the pandemic in the last year and a half, and yeah, of course, people don't want to face what is super broken. But then what? Then it just becomes a trauma that will never overcome. And I don't think the American people delivered control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency to Democrats for us to not do anything. I often refer to myself as a do something Democrat, because when you've grown up the way that I've grown up and you see election cycle after election cycle with inaction and excuses, and then you look around your community and not a thing has changed. People are desperately crying out for us to do something. And whether it's our democracy or whether it's climate change, there's no going back on some of these things if we don't act immediately. It's astounding. I always think about gun violence prevention, which is something that majority of Americans want. It's what we need. It's public health crisis. And yet Democrats and Republicans are still dragging their asses on it. You've written recently that we need a Senate that has people paying student loans, that has LGBTQ people, that has people who look like America. What do you think or hope will change when that happens. Well, you think about it right now, there are more octogenarians in the Senate than millennials. And when you think about the fact that these senators vote on lifetime appointments for judges, not just at the Supreme Court, which we spend a lot of time thinking about, but also for these district and appellate level courts, jurists that will sit on the bench for, in some cases, decades. Long after the people that voted them on the bench will be gone. 
we'll still have to deal with these people. Correct. And you just think about that for five seconds and say, how does that make any sense? The generations that are going to be most impacted by the decisions we're making right now, how dare we have conversations that don't include them? Whether we act or don't act on the climate crisis is going to impact me and you and your kids and my future kids much more than the folks who are sitting on their hands right now saying we shouldn't do anything or we should act like it's a hoax or we should say that it's something bad, but again, we're not going to actually invest the resources necessary to address it. We are in desperate need of what has pulled this country, and we see it. The good thing is we see it bubbling up in all the activism that we've seen. The brave young people in the Sunrise Movement who are taking these long marches across the country and across their states to raise awareness about it. Just in Philadelphia, we had folks doing a sit-in in the mayor's office saying that we need to invest American Rescue Plan dollars in people and into communities and not in just cutting taxes for businesses and cases really putting their bodies on the line because they have, as I said before, skin in the game. And when I talk about what it means to have people in office who reflect the fullness of the American experience, this is not about just having ornamental diversity. It's not about saying, well, Pennsylvania's elected 57 senators, every single one of them, a white male, let's just do something different to say we've done something different. No, it has an impact on policy. Hi, I'm State Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith. LGBTQ voices in government are needed now more than ever before, especially as Trump's shameless and bigoted attacks on LGBTQ Americans have empowered those who oppose equality and want to chip away at our progress in legislatures across the country. Just the other day, here in Pennsylvania, we're passing all these bills trying to control a woman's body, her right to choose, in the name of protecting kids who might have developmental disabilities. One of my campaign co-chairs who I serve with in the state house, Representative Jessica Benham, she is the first member of the General Assembly with a developmental disability. And her comments on this issue were so powerful. And they cut through in a way that I think nobody else was able to cut through because she was speaking with a level of expertise that other folks didn't have. And so a lot of times when we talk about experience in public office, what we're often talking about is how many membership cards do you have to elite institutions? That's what they're really talking about. When folks say, oh, how much experience do you have? How many elite membership clubs are you a part of? When the reality is there is an expertise that people like I have, you can say raise the minimum wage is a good thing, but how many people in the Senate have had to work a minimum wage job to survive? Not work a minimum wage job because they needed something to do in the summer, but work a minimum wage job because that's the only thing keeping your lights on. How many people can actually say that? And there's a level of expertise that LGBTQ folks bring to public policy. And I've seen it again and again and again that when I walk into a committee hearing, we're having different conversations because I'm there. We're having different conversations because the women who ran for office and are now in that room because they're there. We're having different conversations, as I just mentioned with Representative Benham, because she's there. And that is critical to how we ultimately execute public policy. I want to talk about Pennsylvania for a minute. Tell me about the people there. Who would you be representing? What type of person? What I love about the state 
is that, first of all, I like to say Pennsylvania is the birthplace of big ideas. The American experiment in democracy was birthed right in my city. And with that has come people who are incredibly resilient in the face of seeing different industries come and leave the state and seeing the ebb and flow of what that has meant for families, but also folks who are deeply forward-looking in terms of being the folks that build and usher in the next big thing. And I think we have such an ability to do that. I say it all the time about the climate crisis. These jobs that are being created right now, every single day in green energy, think about in electric cars, which is going to be a huge industry. And with all due respect, sorry, not sorry to the folks in Michigan, love Michigan, wonderful. But I want that stuff built in Pennsylvania. You think about those electric batteries, and I will never get that commercial out of my head. In the last Super Bowl, where there was like not a Pennsylvania team, which I was very upset about because the Steelers had a pretty good season. So I thought at least they would get to the Super Bowl. But that's another podcast. There was a commercial with Will Ferrell, and he's taking all these like celebrities and stuff, and they're going over to Norway to build the electric batteries for these next fleet of cars. Why the hell would we build that in Norway when we can do that in Altoona? When we can do that in Scranton, when we can do that in Beaver, when we can do that in Aliquippa. So we are people who are well prepared to take big ideas and then implement them through the type of hard work and ingenuity that I think Pennsylvania has always been so famous for. We're not really good at preparing people for a changing economy. It almost feels like we're always a step behind. And you're right. We have ingenious people in this country innovative, smart, creative, incredible people. There is no reason why we can't figure it out and create things here that really make a difference. You speak quite a bit about working families, which I love, but I think that this is a group that is lumped together in one block, but it's actually a pretty diverse group. So who are Pennsylvania's working families and what kind of political influence do they have right now? So I think that there is a view and I dealt with this when I talked so much about the minimum wage. I was in a hearing in the House Commerce Committee. I'm the chair of our automation and technology subcommittee as well. We're in this hearing about the minimum wage and the Commonwealth Foundation comes in and this Coke-backed outfit is the biggest donor to state House Republicans, um, the Commonwealth Foundation. And we have this whole hearing about the minimum wage and they are all talking about minimum wage workers, many of my colleagues, as high school kids. As all the folks who are minimum wage workers, they're just doing this after school. They're just after school high school kids and they just need a little experience, whatever. And then the woman from the Commonwealth Foundation, and people can go see this video on Now This, it went pretty viral, where she said that actually... She believes there should be no minimum wage. The actual position of the Commonwealth Foundation is that the minimum wage should be zero dollars, which harkens back to the original sin of this country, to be clear. So they believe that there should be no floor for people. And they believe that the people we're talking about when we talk about the minimum wage, when we talk about passing the PRO Act to make it easier for folks to unionize, that we're just talking about little kids. But the reality is most of the folks who are making the minimum wage are moms, are women of color. And those families are bearing the brunt of our refusal to raise wages for people 
And making it easier for folks to unionize is a big part of how we ultimately raise wages, not just to the $15 minimum wage floor, but raise wages beyond that. Because when people have a right to organize for higher wages, organize for better health care, we know economists have looked at how that directly tracks with folks moving out of being poor or working poor and moving into the middle class. And so what we see right now across the Commonwealth is a multiracial, multi-regional group of folks, primarily folks who are in the service industries, the industries that actually move us all forward, or folks who are in the healthcare industry, like my mom was, who was a CNA for most of her career, who was a home healthcare aide for folks who had severe physical and mental disabilities. She went back to school and ultimately got her associate's degree to become like a manager at the company she was working for. And before my mom passed, the highest wage she ever made, 12 bucks and 50 cents. And think about that. Doing the work that keeps our society going. Jamel Brown makes $13.77 an hour cleaning a very busy emergency department at this hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm not greedy. I just want to get by. COVID has made it particularly difficult this year with some workers, he says, quitting out of fear. So you were working especially hard. Yes, ma'am. On his feet all day, risking his own health but not making enough to rent an apartment, he crashes at his sister's and talks to us from his car. Did you get a bonus for that extra hard work? We didn't get nothing. Nothing? We didn't get nothing. We didn't get hazard pay. We didn't get a bonus. What he did get was COVID. When he got back to work, they made him employee of the month and gave him a $6 voucher to the cafeteria. It felt like a slap in the face. While Jamel got no bump in his salary, new federal filings reveal HCA Healthcare, which owns the hospital, gave its CEO, Samuel Hazen, a 13% raise, bringing him to a whopping $30 million a year. I was so incensed this entire pandemic as companies would throw up these signs saying a hero works here or thank a worker or how great are these essential workers? They're just wonderful. But don't praise people. Pay them. But we're also a state where we have the highest number of folks who have crushing student loan debt, which puts people in a position where they're not able to buy that first home or to start that family or to take a risk and maybe start that enterprise with the dreams and the talents that they have because of the weight and because of the unaffordability we've seen in higher ed. There are a lot of folks who say, well, how come you're black and you're gay? How can you ever win in Pennsylvania? Because I will tell folks, people don't have to look like me or love like me to know that I will fight for them because I'm also fighting for myself and I'm fighting for my community. I represent the third poorest district in the Commonwealth. Parts of my district, the average annual income is under 10,000 bucks. Fairhill section of my district Last time I saw numbers on this, we were talking about 9783 bucks average annual income. And so these are the families who are working two and three jobs, who are driving Uber, who are part of the gig economy, who are working in the grocery stores that kept everything going, who are doing the service-based jobs that have become so part and parcel of our economy. But we have left them out again and again. And you have so many people who talk about the New Deal and the fair labor standards without talking about the fact that in the fair labor standards, we actively left out domestic workers. Oh, we yeah. actively left out agricultural workers, right. which make up a lot of the workers in Pennsylvania, workers who were seeing the highest rates of infections because they couldn't work from home. 
Okay, you can't do agricultural work in many cases from home. They were out working, but yet we don't give them the pay or protections that they deserve. I mean, the care industry, it needs to be completely restructured from the ground up. And we're seeing the repercussions of what happens to a country when they don't put certain respect behind certain positions. The two million women that had to leave the workforce because they didn't have childcare that's a lot of money that has been taken from our economy because of a shortage in child and elder care. And we need to do better for sure. It seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the GOP in Pennsylvania is not a lot different from the GOP in the rest of the United States. They're worse. And they tried very hard to crush a free and fair election. So absolutely. Tell my listeners what is happening with them in your state right now. A lot of people, I think, got to know me for the first time nationally when I was on Rachel Maddow using the legislative process and using things I learned as a community organizer to block a bill that I think had it become law. I'm not sure what would have happened in Pennsylvania. This resolution, excuse me, not a bill, this resolution which they called an election integrity committee, okay, which you have to use air quotes for because there was nothing about it that had any level of integrity, would have allowed them to investigate the election as it was happening, to investigate the lies that they told. They created lies, (laughs) and then they wanted to investigate their fever dreams. They would have allowed themselves to subpoena ballots, to impound voting machines, and to physically compel elections officials who are supposed to be counting the votes, physically compel them to come before sham hearings to talk about the lies that they were telling about the election. And I will never forget, and it's one of the best moments of my career, their little Scooby-Doo villain press release that they put out after were basically saying, you know, we would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for this radical Democrat. I forget all the things they called me. But this is what they have been up to for a long time, and it hasn't stopped with the election. I had members, my colleagues, sue me in my personal capacity because the president asked me to be an elector to the Electoral College, like personally sue me to try to stop me from going and exercising that responsibility. Well, taking a look at Pennsylvania now, where the state's highest court dealt another blow to the Trump campaign's efforts to overturn election results. In a unanimous decision, the court rejected the Trump team's baseless claims of mass voter fraud. This comes one day after the state dismissed a lawsuit brought by Republican Representative Mike Kelly that argued that the state's GOP legislature violated the Constitution when it expanded absentee voting. This is bonkers stuff. After the election was over, the House Republicans on the state government committee, of which I remain a member, a really powerful committee because it oversees all of our elections, as well as just you hear it from the title state government, almost anything can go to that committee that affects state government. And we conducted 10 different hearings where we heard from elections officials, we heard from so many people. We also heard from, unfortunately, members of the Heritage Foundation and other bonkers people who were part of spreading the election lies and are still spreading these lies today. Ten different hearings to try to prove their lie. And now they want to do things like voter ID in the state. They want to do things like limiting drop boxes, limiting the amount of time that people have to utilize the drop boxes. They want to do all of this stuff because they believe that the way they hold on to power 
is to gerrymander districts every chance they get every 10 years, and then to make it as difficult as possible for people to participate in the electoral process. And I am in the thick of debating these issues with them every single day. Tell people what that's like, because I think right now people are thinking about running for these offices on a state level. And it might help to hear you tell us what it's like and what they're getting into. The first advice that I give to anybody who's thinking about running for office is to run. You have to run. I would encourage anybody who's listening, you have something to offer. I would encourage you to run. And a lot of what keeps people from running is this belief that the folks who are in office are just so much smarter, so much better prepared or something than you. I work with these folks and I promise you, we're not sending like rocket scientists, okay? These people in many cases don't know what the hell they're talking about. And that is what it's like. I'm dealing with a lot of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about, who are what I call button pushers. We have electronic voting in the House and they go in and their job is to look and see how all the other Republicans are voting and they just vote that way. And that's incredibly unfortunate because we're not having serious conversations about just what are the best ideas? What are the ideas that have the most support from the Pennsylvanians? One of the things we do all the time is we rename bridges in the state house, but we're not fixing them. A lot of time changing names and naming them. But it's like, let's actually invest in making them safe. In the infrastructure. Oh, <laughs> God, that's so funny and tragic all at the same time. frustrating. I had one of my colleagues as I was talking about, we have what's called, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but we have this thing in the Pennsylvania constitution called the uniformity clause. And so we don't have progressive taxation, meaning we can't charge people who make more or higher. We have to charge everybody the same percentage. And so I had an interesting idea because we can do tax refunds to basically say that if you make under a certain amount and you spend a certain amount, I think it was like 500 bucks or something. You spent like 500 bucks in the year, which everybody did on groceries, on whatever, that you could get a sales tax refund, just a 50 bucks sales tax refund to folks who spend over $500. And I thought that this would be something that we can get some real support on, just a small thing to help working people who are seeing their wages be stagnant, but the prices of goods going up and they're going to the store buying those things. How about we give them some of that money back that they're paying in sales taxes? And one of my colleagues said, we've helped people enough. Come on. On the record, he said, oh, this is nice, but we've helped people enough. So this is what we're up against. We're working with a bunch of people who believe that using the government to actually help the people who give the government its power, that that is somehow wrong and that somehow we've done enough. We've done almost nothing. And that's why it is critically important that we have people in government whose feet are bloody from walking over the glass of our inaction. American politics is now more diverse than ever before. Women, LGBTQIA people, and non-white communities shattered records during the 2018 midterm elections. And that's great news because it means that the people who create laws in this country are now more than ever representative of its citizens. Well, sort of. The truth is, we still have a lot of work to do. 
And I will tell you, my feet are bloody over walking over the glass of our inaction. And when you get to the house, when people run for their local school board, you'll see so many people who are talking about you, but you're not there. And that's why it's critical that working people, as difficult as these campaigns are, and they are hard. You know, I was the first openly LGBTQ person of color to ever be elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. I'm the first openly LGBTQ person of color to ever run for the U.S. Senate in American history. And if I'm elected, I'll be the first gay man in the U.S. Senate in American history. Being the first is hard because you're walking into a system that was not designed for you. But I am sick and tired of hearing people try to tell my story for me. I am the expert in my own experience. Working people, we are the experts in our own experience. And we need to be in the room where these quote unquote people who know best, where they can hear from us. We need to be in that room. Malcolm, you just make me happy. I just want to talk to you once a week just to get a pep talk. (laughs) So what do you say to people who think a gay black man can't win in Pennsylvania? Well, first I would say just watch. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is when you look at this state, you have about 46% or so of the vote coming out of Philadelphia and the five collar counties. And so me being from where I am, I think that's a big advantage because that's where a lot of the population is. But the other big advantage is I go everywhere and I will talk to anybody about what's at stake. And when I show up to communities where people just aesthetically look at me and say, hey, he'll have no connection to what I'm going through and he doesn't look like me. I remind people that that is a tool. This dividing us all up based on what we look like, based on who we love, based on where we're from, that's a tool by folks who are fine with the status quo to keep us from organizing across region, across religion, across difference. Because while we're sitting here fighting with each other, over, well, you don't look like me and you have a different hairstyle than I do and you like different music than I like possibly, then we have nothing in common. When the reality is these folks who populate our government, these millionaires, many of these folks who are in the top three, four, two, one percent of our population in terms of income, they have a lot less in common with folks in Greene County, or in Schuylkill County, or in Carbon County than I do. And that has been one of the biggest tricks that the elite has played, is that they have convinced us that we should separate ourselves along urban and rural lines, along suburban and exurban lines. And it is to our disadvantage. And for the longest time, Pennsylvania has been such a regionalized state where people say, well, I'm just going to talk to these people. I can win these people. I'll just stay here. Our campaign has been going everywhere and talking to everyone. And that's why you see the significant support that we have around the state. That's why you see donations from every single county in Pennsylvania, because folks are sick of the same politicians who are selling the same thing they've been selling over and over again. And as I said before, I fundamentally believe that people don't care if I look like them or love like them. They care about if I'm going to fight for them. And there is nobody in this race who's going to fight as hard for Pennsylvanians as I will fight for them, period. And when you win, what's the first thing you'll try to achieve in office? If the filibuster's not gone by the time I get there, I'll do everything in my power to make sure we get rid of it. And I lead with that because that has been a barrier 
for us doing things that, as I said, are broadly popular with the American people, but not popular with the elite millionaires in the U.S. Senate. You look at just yesterday, equal pay for women. Unbelievable that that did not pass. You look at the Equality Act, which is still waiting for an up or down vote. We talked in great detail about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You look at the Equal Rights Amendment. Mitch McConnell is crying crocodile tears that nobody cares because what he has done to the Senate is a mockery of what the Senate used to be. When they were in control of the Senate, they didn't allow any amendments. There there was certainly no votes on anything other than judges. That's all they did. And uh, we now have a Democratic majority. You look at so many pieces of legislation that have stalled because the rules are not set up in a way that benefits working people, benefits marginalized people. And a part of what we're going to need to do are change the players in the room and then change the rules of the game. How can my listeners support you and your campaign? So folks can, first of all, go to MalcolmKenyatta.com, and that's K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A. So it's MalcolmKenyatta.com, and you can sign up to be a volunteer, or you can chip in whatever you want. I'll never forget one of the first interviews I had with somebody, and the reporter basically laughed at me because he said, you're not taking any money from oil and gas folks. You're not taking any corporate PAC money. Oh my gosh, how will you ever be able to raise the resources? And what I said is, I want people to know who I work for. And when you chip in whatever you can, you're ensuring that the person you elect actually works for you. We have an opportunity right now to not just make history by electing the first openly gay man to the Senate ever, by having served in the Senate only the 12th African-American in U.S. history and the first senator from Pennsylvania to not be a straight white guy ever. Not only do we have an opportunity to do that, But we have an opportunity to actually elect a working person. Again, it's not about what you wear. It's not about telling somebody else's story. I'm so sick of these politicians, and we've all heard it, right? And they have this canned story. I met Susan, and Susan had a tough life. It's like, I don't need to talk to you. Where the fuck is Susan? Yeah, exactly. Where's Susan, and why isn't she running? Correct. And so I think for something to be different, something has to be different. And what it's going to take is for us believing in the power of organizing. And that is the type of campaign we're running, a campaign where I'm asking people to be a part of this coalition. So if you believe, like I do, that every single person should have access to affordable, quality health care, then this is your campaign. If you believe, like I do, that we should do something about criminal justice reform and that cops shouldn't be able to shoot down unarmed people of color with impunity, then this is your campaign. If you believe that we should do something about student debt and medical debt, that we should make it easier for folks to buy that first home, then this is your campaign. But the only way we win is we have to completely buck a system that wasn't built for campaigns like ours. We have to buck that system. And so every person who chips in whatever they can, it takes us that much closer to the goal. And I'm also at Malcolm Kenyatta on all social media, because the other thing we need to do is to get people to know about us who would be perfectly happy to support us, who just haven't heard about our campaign yet. And so if you can donate what you can and then tell three friends about us, imagine what can happen. What gives you hope? My biggest hope, and I say this all the time, and some of these folks I will get to talk to, some of these folks I'll never get to talk to. I can't wait to meet that young person who says, 
I ran for office because I saw you running. Because it's so difficult for our young people in particular to be something they can't see. That's why, Alyssa, seriously, and I don't just say this because I'm here, the way you've used your platform, somebody who was on TV in all of our homes and remains so with all the different projects that you're doing, you could do what a lot of your colleagues in the industry do, right? They do their things and that's it. But I think what you understand and what all of us understand is that democracy is not a spectator sport. We can't just hope that it all works out. This is not one of those movies or one of those TV shows that you've been in, right? Where it's written the result at the end and we know how it's going to work out and it'll be tough, but it'll all work out in the end. We don't know that it's going to work out in the end. And it requires something of us. And I think about this story of Benjamin Franklin all the time. And I'm from Philly. So of course I think about Benjamin Franklin, where this woman walks up to him during the constitutional convention. And she says, Mr. Franklin, what is it going to be a monarchy or a Republic? And he says, a Republic, if you can keep it. And this is our opportunity to keep it. And a part of the way we keep it is by everybody getting involved in whatever way that they can. For everybody, it's not going to be running for office, but everybody can do something. But I do hope that a lot of people choose to run for office. I really do. Malcolm Kenyatta, you give me hope. So thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. Government hasn't worked for working families like mine. I know what it's like to see an eviction notice, to work a minimum wage job. My first one was at the age of 12, working to support my family. My dad was a social worker. My mom was a home health care aide. No matter how hard they worked, they struggled to make ends meet for me and my siblings. And unfortunately, my story isn't that unique. It's familiar to Pennsylvanians all across the Commonwealth. Working families from Philly to Erie, from Scranton to Johnstown, from Bethlehem to Uniontown are resilient and leaning on one another. But Pennsylvania and America are at a crossroads. After four years of division and just over a month since a failed coup at the United States Capitol, we face a question of who we want to be as a country. I know a lot of people are thinking, this election isn't until next year. We just finished the last election. How are we here already? Well, the reason we are here is that the attacks on our democracy don't stop when there's not an election in November. Nope, they intensify. The bad actors who want to suppress your votes get to work in the dark. And right now, right this very minute, is when we need to be shining our brightest lights on those efforts. Malcolm Kenyatta is Pennsylvania's brightest light. Around the country, bright lights are just starting their campaigns for 2022. And if this razor-thin majority in the Senate has told us anything, it's that we need to expand our majority and make the filibuster and the few Democratic opponents of progress completely irrelevant. There's a Malcolm for every seat. Now, right now, is the time we need to start lifting them up and doing everything we can to make sure they can win. If we wait until next year, it'll be too late. So, dust off those canvassing shoes, and let's get to work. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. 
please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.